It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 358 for September 1st, 2013. This week, so many people say the PC is dying that some people are actually beginning to believe this nonsense. The people who create malware are getting smarter, and some of the fraudulent messages that they use have realistic appearances. You can still outsmart the crooks. Were the Balmer years good or bad for Microsoft? The answer clearly is yes. And in short circuits, the New York Times website knocked offline again this week. This time it was an attack, not a bad update, and it's going to get worse. And Microsoft has released Windows 8.1 to manufacturing while simultaneously snubbing TechNet and MSDN subscribers. Yeah, the personal computer is dying. Really? Well, if you believe that, then you probably also believe that if you forward an email to 100 people, Bill Gates will send you $1,000. And you probably believe that you've won a million-dollar lottery, even though you didn't even enter the lottery. And you might believe that hotel room keycards contain personal information that thieves can harvest. Oh, and undoubtedly, you believe the sky is falling, too. You know, there's been so much written and said about the end of the PC era that a little common sense seemed in order. The PC era started more than 40 years ago at a time when mainframe computers ruled the world. Mainframe computers were doomed, some said. In fact, mainframe computers are still needed for some tasks, and that may be the key to why PCs aren't doomed either. They're simply appropriate for some tasks. Maybe you need a highly customized computer with a lot of disk space or a lot of memory or a really fast processor. Try configuring a phone or a tablet to add those features. You can customize notebook computers to some extent, but true customization requires a fairly big box into which specific components will be placed. Along the same lines, maybe you need multiple monitors. I've run dual monitor systems for several years, and whenever I have to do any real work on a notebook computer or attempt to do any real work on a tablet, the single small screen is a real detriment to productivity. And that's what computers are all about, productivity. If you have a computer that slows you down, what's the point? I have a large tablet, I have a small tablet, and they are wonderful computing devices for the tasks that they do well, and there are a lot of things they do well. But I'd never want to use either a tablet or, for that matter, a notebook to put together a TechBiter Worldwide program. If you're a real hardcore gamer, or somebody who creates content for a living or even for fun, notebook computers are about the bare minimum you're going to be able to work with. Most of the people who fit either of these descriptions will still want a large, powerful desktop system with a lot of memory. They'll also want full-sized keyboards and real mice. Now, granted, you can attach a keyboard and a mouse to a tablet, but you're still stuck with the small screen. And yes, there are devices that will allow a tablet computer to run multiple large monitors, 
but then you're still stuck with a small amount of onboard memory. And yes, there are ways to attach huge disk drives to the tablet that's now connected to a keyboard, a mouse, and two big monitors. But if you're going to go to all that trouble and expense, doesn't buying a desktop system sound more reasonable? Desktop systems also have the processing power needed for multitasking, for powerful applications such as video and photo editing, and the ability to be configured for multiple operating systems, either by using virtual machine software or by dual-booting the computer. This may well be the year of the tablet, and certainly tablets are selling well. But just as mainframes continue to be used for those applications where it makes sense to run a mainframe, I think we're going to continue to see desktop computers for many, many years. Fewer of them, yes, but they're not a dying breed. At least not yet, and probably not for another 30 or 40 years. This week, within just a few minutes, I received two email messages that are rather interesting. Message number one said somebody wanted to connect with me on LinkedIn, but I'd never heard of the person. Should I just accept the invitation or click the link to see the person's profile? And then moments later, a message from American Express. That message told me that I had just made a $5,000 purchase, and I had told the company to notify me of any purchase larger than $2,000. Should I check it out? For LinkedIn, the answer is neither. And for American Express, the answer is no. Those who create malware clearly are getting smarter. The LinkedIn message exactly mimics real messages from LinkedIn. No real visible clue that it was a fake. Only hovering the mouse cursor over the poisoned link told the tale because the link went not to LinkedIn, but to an IP address. The American Express message, on the other hand, was a bit easier. I haven't set any specific limit that should trigger a notification from American Express, but I know from experience that the company's anti-fraud unit is vigilant and watches closely for pattern changes. When American Express has a question, I receive an automated phone call, not an email. So although I knew the message was a fraud, there was nothing about its appearance that would reveal that. Hovering the mouse cursor over the link revealed the address of a hijacked website in Central Europe. The amount of fraud on the Internet is exceeded only by the amount of porn on the Internet. An up-and-coming threat, one that you'll probably start seeing soon, is based on Facebook. It's malware that will appear to be a video from somebody you know. The link may come from an email message or it might appear in a Facebook message from somebody you know. The message will say you have been tagged in a Facebook post. Click the link and you'll go to a malware site that will prompt you to download a plugin needed to view the video. Click that and the download will hijack your computer and your Facebook account and just about everything else on the computer. This is a threat that combines malware and social engineering, 
but it does so in an automated manner, and that makes the threat far more serious than the typical social engineering ploy, because the typical ploy requires a significant investment of time and resources by the fraudsters. By automating it, they eliminate the need for all that time and all those resources. Facebook says that its security team is working to eliminate the links, and currently the service is attempting to block the malicious sites when users click on links within the Facebook application. Links that are delivered via email, though, are more problematic because they take Facebook entirely out of the equation. Some antivirus applications will catch and suppress malicious links, and some router manufacturers, Netgear for example, replace your internet service provider's DNS server with their own and this will also block attempts to follow known malware links. Keyword there, known malware links. It used to be that the best advice was never to click a link in an email from somebody you don't know. Then it became don't click any link in an email. Now it seems to be expanding to don't click anything ever. Or maybe just turn off your computer and give up. Well, it doesn't have to be that severe. The best protection continues not to be hardware, not to be software. The best protection is wetware. That's the stuff between your ears. When coupled with a healthy amount of skepticism, not to say paranoia, the wetware will maintain your security. Hover your mouse cursor over links instead of clicking them. If the link appears to be legitimate, still don't click it. Type the words into your browser instead of clicking. If any website wants you to install a plugin or a browser extension, leave immediately. Go to your browser manufacturer's plugin or extension service and check it out there. Mozilla provides an add-on service. Microsoft and Google do the same thing for Internet Explorer and Chrome. Visit those services to obtain any browser extension and even then, it's a good idea to use a search engine first to look for information about an extension before you install it. As the crooks become smarter about finding ways to steal our information and our money, we have to become smarter about keeping our information and our money safe and secure. It's not always easy, but it's not that hard either. As Sergeant Esterhouse, remember Sergeant Esterhouse on Hill Street Blues? As Sergeant Esterhouse said on every episode, Hey, let's be careful out here. In the past week, the tech media have simply overflowed with articles about Steve Ballmer, what he did right at Microsoft, and what he got wrong. I don't want to spend a lot of time with an equally lengthy rumination, but I can't ignore the 13-year Ballmer era either, now that it's near an end. So, a short synopsis. Something Microsoft under Balmer got right, but perhaps not right away, Windows 8 and the Surface Tablet. Microsoft hasn't sold anywhere near the number of Surface Tablets that had been anticipated. That may be in part because Microsoft, as it always seems to do, made one disastrous mistake. In this case, that mistake was the RT Tablet. 
It looks like it's running Windows, but it won't run legacy Windows applications. The Surface Pro, on the other hand, is one of the best Windows 8 tablets on the market. If Microsoft can maintain its presence in the market, the Surface should become increasingly important. And Windows 8 continues to be scorned largely by people who seem not to know much about it. The upcoming 8.1 release may help, but no matter what, people are going to continue to use desktop and notebook computers, at least for a few more years, probably longer than that. The market for these machines is clearly in decline as tablets become more powerful and more versatile. But they're going to stick around, and Microsoft pretty much has a lock on that market. From success to major failure, worst product ever, Windows Vista. I tried for two years to like Vista because it had a lot of promise, but it was Microsoft's worst operating system since Windows ME, the Millennium Edition. Bloated, unstable, slow, and it crashed a lot. Even Balmer says that this is the product he most regrets having foisted on an unsuspecting public. He wasn't quite that precise about it, but he does regret Vista. But Vista did lead to Windows 7, a faster and more stable version that a lot of people refer to as Vista done right. And now if those same people would just realize that Windows 8 is Windows 7 done better. How about an aging winner, the Xbox? Okay, so the Xbox really dates back to the time when Bill Gates was running the place, but Balmer has been in charge for most of the device's run. A second-generation Xbox has sold really well, about 60 million units so far, and a third-generation Xbox One is scheduled for release in just a couple of months in November. In 2010, Microsoft released Kinect, a gesture-based Xbox controller. It has been a huge hit. How much life is left in the Xbox remains to be seen. How about Dumb and Dumber? Then you got Zune and the Kin. Microsoft released its supposed iPod killer, the Zune, in 2006. It had a lot of features, but it looked clunky next to Apple's iPod, and the operation was equally clunky. But just as Microsoft has pulled lessons from other failures, technologies developed for the Zune were later recycled for use in other portable products. An earlier example, Microsoft Bob in the Gates years, led to some of the features we see today in operating systems. But it was a complete bomb. And the Kin? That was Microsoft's attempt to create a low-priced phone aimed at the teen market. The phones turned out to be too expensive and too limited. They needed a data plan, but they didn't have the hardware needed to effectively use a data plan. Maybe you've forgotten about the Kin. After just two months, Microsoft pulled the virtual plug, and the Kin was gone. But then came Microsoft smartphones. <clears throat> Today's Windows phones really are pretty good, but they have to overcome a lot of negative karma that came from the first batch of Windows phones. And now it's probably too late for Microsoft in this market. We have iPhones, and we have Android phones. RIM has pulled back from its near-death experience with updated BlackBerry phones to retain a distant third place in the market. There's really no niche for Microsoft to fill here. Could this be game over? In Bing, Microsoft has a contender, 
It's not Google, and that might actually be one of Bing's most salient features. Introduced in 2009, Bing has managed to carve out a space in the search engine market. Bing was launched following Microsoft's failed attempt to acquire Yahoo and is now in second place. A distant second place, granted, but second place nonetheless. Google is the search engine used for nearly 70% of all general Internet searches. This compares to Bing's about 18%. And Bing still isn't making any money for Microsoft. In fact, Microsoft recently closed its fiscal year, and the online services division, which includes Bing and MSN, reported a $1.3 billion loss. Microsoft Cloud Computing looks like a winner. You could say it's on Cloud9. Despite lackluster performance from the other online services division and the largely ignored Outlook email service, formerly Live Mail, formerly Hotmail, Microsoft is positioned well for cloud-based computing. That's somewhat surprising in light of the fact that Bill Gates originally thought the Internet was nothing more than a passing fad and, as a result, brought Microsoft into network computing and to the web far too late. Microsoft's Azure cloud service is a hit, particularly with big businesses, and that's a good place to have a hit because they pay a lot of money. Microsoft's enterprise division is competitive, and it has the same kind of grip on that market segment as Microsoft has maintained for decades on the desktop. Google has entered the market, though, and this could result in a partly cloudy forecast for Microsoft in the years following the Balmer era. And then one great call by Steve Balmer, Skype. During the Balmer years, Microsoft acquired a lot of businesses. Some were abject failures. But the one I think will stand out in the long term is Skype. Microsoft probably paid too much for Skype. But high-speed Internet access is becoming ubiquitous. And with that change, an increasing shift to voice over Internet protocol. And that's where Skype lives. Balmer certainly has made his share of bad calls in his time as CEO, but those who would paint the Balmer years as disasters for Microsoft should also consider the calls he got right. In short circuits, the New York Times was offline again this week, and this time it was hackers. A week ago, the New York Times website was unavailable for several hours following an unsuccessful system update. The site was offline again this week, but this time it was because of an attack by a group known as the Syrian Electronic Army. This is a group that supports President Bashar al-Assad, and the Syrian Electronic Army brought the site down, also attacked the Huffington Post website in the United Kingdom, just as it has recently done to sites operated by National Public Radio, the Washington Post, the Financial Times, and Twitter feeds from the Associated Press, the BBC's Weather Report, and Reuters. The BBC's Weather Report? 
bad aim? In this most recent case, the attack was directed at Melbourne IT. That's the domain name registrar that the New York Times uses. Now, that raises a question about why the newspaper would register its domain through an Australian registrar rather than one in the United States. But that's a question for some other time. The Syrian Electronic Army attacked the Washington Post's website earlier this month and attempted to attack CNN unsuccessfully. In May, the Syrian Electronic Army brought down the website operated by London's Financial Times. The shadowy organization that denies, somewhat less than effectively, any ties to the Syrian president is likely to stage additional attacks, particularly if the United States takes any military action against Syria. More serious attacks could target oil pipelines, electric transmission lines, or the banking system. Microsoft has released Windows 8.1 to manufacturing, and normally that would mean that members of the Microsoft Developers Network, MSDN, and the Microsoft TechNet members would be able to download and install the update right away. Not so fast, folks. Not this time. You're going to have to wait until October 18th, just like everybody else. Now, that's unfortunate because it's TechNet and MSDN members who actually pay no small amount for the privilege of trying Microsoft applications before they're released that regular users turn to when they find that something doesn't work as expected. For TechNet subscribers, it's kind of a double snub because Microsoft is sunsetting the program, meaning that it's being discontinued. If you just sent your renewal in, well, sorry about that. Windows 8 received a lot of negative feedback, much of which really wasn't justified, and version 8.1 will attempt the impossible. It's going to seek to make everybody happy, which is usually a sure way to make everybody unhappy. Microsoft apparently plans to work on additional bug reports and to add some features with additional fixes prior to the release. The release to manufacturing code seemingly will be installed on computers that are destined for sale after October 18th, and they won't have the additional patches that will be, or might be, or should be included in the update downloads in October. That would mean that machines with the RTM code will need to be updated immediately. But that's true of most computers that are sold. For example, a new computer my wife purchased just recently had more than 70 updates the day we brought it home. That's to be expected. So why not release the code to MSDN and TechNet subscribers and let them perform the same additional updates that everybody else will have to perform in October? Microsoft is mum on that. I don't know, maybe we can blame Balmer. Some of the changes that are in the pipeline include smaller and larger live tiles, support for the user's own desktop wallpaper behind the start screen, returning the start button, and adding an option to boot directly to the desktop. Wow, that's going to save exactly one keystroke. Microsoft says that it has also improved multitasking of Metro apps and multi-monitor support within Metro, which I thought was pretty good already. The Metro interface will have more user controls, and those will be useful. But 
rarely has so much fuss been made by so many people about so little. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.